Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. And so we've been travelling. I've been I've flown in from Palm Beach this morning just to do this uh, podcast. Uh, and then I'm off to Sri Lanka tomorrow to, to talk about Mount Battens. But today we're talking about something that someone's asked us to look at, and that's uh, whether George VI had a mistress or two, oh. uh, oh. which everyone finds very hard to believe. But we are going to talk to someone later who may shed some light on that. And I think you would like me to – I did a bit of research, and I think I've got a few little leads myself on George VI. That's me. Well, they yeah. had affairs, so it's nothing new. Yeah, welcome, everybody, to our most – Outrageously, scandalously gossipy episode yet. <laughs> Expect so, innuendos, half truths, and unprovable allegations. Such fun. Yes, yes. Well, then we're, we're we're going where no other royal biographer has gone before. Um, but I mean, there's I someone today was telling me that they thought that uh, Anthony Blunt was George V's illegitimate son. I don't think there's any truth in that. Uh, and someone was uh, in fact trying to get me to research. Uh, that uh, George, that the Queen Mum, uh, um, gave birth to Princess Margaret, but had an affair with Victor Sassoon, who was a Jewish businessman, and that was her real father. So uh, I'm afraid that one hasn't got got any legs either. Yeah, the, the the whole thing with you know who was Harry's father? Was it James Hewitt? This this is as old as royalty itself. Always yeah. been these kind of scandals and. We could discuss later whether it matters, why we're interested, whether we should be interested, but the truth is we are interested. And Tom actually is such a great guest to take us into this area because his whole life and his family's life for many generations are really kind of the sort of professional royal hangers-on, I suppose you could say. Yeah, and I mean, he's continuing to the present day as a journalist rather than a courtier. Yes. But yeah, I've I've been struck with in all my research that you know certain families like the Mountbattens and others, you know, go back f- three or four generations, very very closely linked to the royals. I mean, clearly related to the royals too. But you know, you see these private secretaries like Michael Adine, 
you know, who um, follow in a family tradition or fellows. Um, and I mean, even, I mean, uh, Fergie's father worked for Prince Charles. I mean, they keep, they keep people very close to them. Well, this is the secret, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to have a life where who you marry and the children you bear, kind of your, it's your job, it's your dynastic job. Um, so often these will be, um, negotiated relationships. And then the, the, the romantic, the passionate, the fun relationships are something that happens in parallel. And you keep it all within a very tight circle. Maybe people gossip about it, but actually nobody knows really anything for sure. Nobody really cares. Life goes on. Um, and Tom, Tom's family, as I'm sure you'll talk about, has sort of been part of that over several generations, this sort of the naughty secret side of royal life. But, but it's more than just Tom, isn't it? I mean, you uh, and all the work you've done, Andrew, on, um, on the Windsors, you've come across some, six, some kind of harder evidence, I think, that uh, perhaps George VI was just like all the rest of them. Um, and got away with it. Well, I mean, I certainly, you know, the, Lady Colin Campbell, I suppose, has gone furthest um, in terms of, 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 of the biographies talking about the mistresses. Um, there have been uh, other people who have alluded to it. And clearly I found mistresses when I did both the Duke of Windsor and I did the Mountbatten's and indeed illegitimate children. I talked in, in Treasure King about uh, a man called Seely, who I think who's still alive who I'm pretty sure is is the son of, of the Duke of Windsor. Um, and there are a number of other people I mentioned in the book, which, you know, there is some quite strong evidence to suggest they possibly were. Um, but George VI is interesting. I mean, the four names that, that are generally mentioned, uh, one is Camilla Sykes, that Tom's going to talk about, his grandmother. Another is Phil- Phyllis Monk- Monkman. Another is Evelyn Boulay. Uh, Maureen Stanley. And then uh, Peter Townsend's uh, wife, Rosemary Townsend, and then someone called Magdalene Eldon. So Peter Townsend, who went out with Princess Margaret. Margaret. And, you know, if we remember, he was the innocent party in, in that uh, divorce. She had an affair with a man called de Laszlo. And uh, it's suggesting that actually Rosemary Townsend may have had an affair after that with uh, George VI. Now, um, this is, this is, uh, what, uh, Lady, uh, Lady Colin Campbell says. Um, and all these women, they're very much kind of in the tent, aren't they? They're, they're real well, insiders. They fall into two categories, either the aristocrats or the actresses. Uh, and I mean, that's always one of the great concerns to get involved with an actress. I mean, it was always said of, of Philip, his, his affairs were with actresses or, or aristocrats. Um, and certainly with George the Sixth, I mean, before he got married to to uh, the Queen Mum, Queen Elizabeth, uh, he seems to be involved with a series of actresses. He was a bit of a late developer compared to his older brother. Uh, and uh, one woman that's mentioned is a musical comedy star called Marjorie Gordon. Uh, there's a Getty girl called Ruby Miller. Uh, Felix, Felix, uh, Phyllis Monkman was a, a sort of star of the London theatrical world in the 1920s. She was three years older than Bertie. Uh, and according to the diaries of Cecil Beaton, uh, he lost his virginity to her in 1919. I mean, she was almost asked to step forward and, and do her duty. Uh, and she was an interesting figure. She was a sort of great friend of Ivan Novello and Noel Coward. I mean, I saw this even with Mountbatten. Mountbatten got one of his mistresses to sleep with his grandson, uh, to initiate him into sex. So it's, it's, you know, it is an extraordinary sort of world. Um, but what was interesting about Phyllis, 
Nicholas Monkman is that uh, according to a letter from uh, the future Edward VIII to his uh, mistress, Frieda Dudley Ward, um, George actually lost his virginity just before the end of the First World War in October 1918, when the letter talks about the deed was done, though no further details were shared. Um, but it was said that Albert remained close to Monkman, uh, sending her a birthday present every year until her death aged 84, and that on her death, a wallet was found with a picture of him inside. Well, the other uh, the other woman that's often connected with him is a, an Australian called uh, Sheila Chisholm. She was the same age as him. She was married to the rather raffish Lord Loughborough, heir to the Earl of Roslyn. Uh, and she was a close friend of uh, Edward's mistress, uh, Frieda Dudley Ward. So the four of them used to go out as the four Jews. Now, there's some dispute about whether there was an affair with Sheila Chisholm. There were also rumours that her sister had had a child, uh, a royal child. But I think that's there's no truth in that. But um, George V was so appalled by his son carrying on with this married woman with two children that he said that he wouldn't make him his son Duke of York if he continued seeing her. And Bertie wrote to his elder brother that she was the one and only person in this world who means anything to me, but he bowed to his father's wishes. And the biographer of Sheila Chisholm, Michael Robert Wainwright, discovered that after World War II, uh, Chisholm was taken to dine at Buckingham Palace by a diplomat called Sir Charles Hebben Johnson, who wrote in his diary how Bertie and Sheila had got to reminiscing. Sheila, seeing the Queen listening intently, added, and when you think, sir, how innocent it all was, George, red with fury, replied, innocent? I don't know what the devil you mean, he said. <laughs> so It is, it um, is a side of, of, of royal and aristocratic life that does continue to fascinate. I was thinking about, was it George Bernard Shaw was writing about the, the boring middle-class morality of his time? So this is why the royals remain popular, because they enjoy the things that the great mass of the working class also enjoy. <laughs> it's yes, a rather rude way of putting it, but <clears throat> he probably it meant, um, I think he listed them as alcohol, fornication, horse racing and boxing. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe boxing has, has dropped off the list in the same way. <laughs> but um, there is something in that, I think, you know. Um, yes, no, there is. I mean, I think there is a bond there. Well, this this is the the the, the character Evelyn Lay. Um, she only died. She was born in nineteen hundred. She died in nineteen ninety six. Um, and George met her in nineteen twenty at a performance of the musical comedy The Shop Girl, and he was rather taken with her. Uh, and in the words of the Dowager Lady Harding of Penshurst, the widow of his principal private secretary, uh, and an intimate and lifelong friend of the Queen Mother, the King was rather more than a little in love with Evelyn Lay. Uh, and Lady Colin Campbell says that the same opinion was confided to me by the Queen Mother's late private secretary, Sir Martin Gilliatt, who knew Lay socially. Of, and this is Lady Colin writing, of course, Her Majesty, the Queen Mother, has always been aware of the King's intense admiration for Boo, he told me. She found it rather touching and trusted absolutely in Boo's discretion. Lay's caution with regard to any discussion of the matter was maintained until her death in 1996. She forbade any mention of it in her ghostwritten autobiography, Boo to My Friends, published in 1958, which contains only one reference to the King. 
And when I showed her the proposed text of an article I wrote about her in the 1970s, which described the king's fervent admiration of her, she struck out the passage, writing in the margin, not in the Queen Mother's lifetime. In fact, this comes from uh, Michael Thornton, who's another royal biographer. Uh, and so yet despite his undoubted devotion to his wife, and it was said that Queen, the Queen Mum didn't like sex, whom he once described to their older daughter, the present Queen, as the most marvellous person in the world in my eyes, there remains a startling possibility that George VI car- continued to carry a flame for one of Britain's most dazzling stars. Um, well, we should, have, we should have Lady Colin on again. Yes, no, no. We Tell can, us we all these things ourselves. But, um, but what do you really think, Andrew? I mean, you, George VI, of all of them, I suppose, had the reputation, perhaps until this podcast, of being kind of a bit boring, a little bit, you know, he didn't have the sort of, obviously nothing like uh, Edward or, or his own father. Almost he was not, he never intended to be king when he was born. Um, maybe I always assume he has a fairly quiet sort of a life. But all this is a very different, um, you know, he feels like a raffish man about town with lots of affairs going on. Do you buy that image of him? Uh, well, I think we haven't really got the true picture of George VI. There's just been a biography by Sally, Sally Beddle-Smith, which I've been reading, but that very much is a conventional uh, picture. And time and time again, you know, we have a succession of books about members of the royal family, which more or less all say the same thing and present them as these paragons of virtue. And then someone comes along and writes something, you know, with evidence to back it that shows that isn't the case. So I think um, there's probably more to this than meets the eye. Uh, I mean, it'll be interesting to hear what Tom says about the relationship with with his grandmother. I mean, Lady Colin Campbell is well-connected. And I mean, she certainly talks uh, in her book, uh, she says, now the war was over, he turned his attention to three safely married women. I mean, that was always the key that they'd delivered, as you say, the, the heirs themselves, and they could then have fun. Um, and she, she says, for her part, Elizabeth proved herself to be as indulgent of Bertie's involvement with Rosemary Townsend, Magdalene Eldon and Camilla Sykes as she had been with Boulay and Maureen Stanley. Each of these women had an interesting background. Each was stunningly good looking. Uh, and then she talks about the, the, the various characters and their background. And she says that by 1946, Bertie was flirting openly with Rosemary, while Princess Margaret was making a more covert play for Peter. The sight of father and daughter behaving... So this is like a soap opera. Uh, well, like the royal family is Cheating across opera. the generations. It's like... Um, well, you know, I found even the with... Beverly Hillbillies or something. And that Batten was passing on his mistresses to Prince Philip. I mean, they sort of, you know, they, they, they sort of... It's like a sort of pet... They pass them on. Um, okay. uh, talked, an, an advert for the Republican movement. I think. <laughs> uh, the sight of father and daughter behaving so flirtatiously with husband and wife under the benign and approving gaze of Queen Elizabeth was too much for people such as my father-in-law, Ian Campbell, 11th Duke of Argyll, who felt the hypocrisy was unendurable. Uh, and then she goes on. Indeed, once Bertie was dead and Princess Margaret's romance with uh, Group Captain Peter Townsend became public knowledge. Uh, Elizabeth would find her complacent smile wiped right off her face. Um, uh, She talks about how um, Rosemary and Peter Townsend were divorced in 1952. She married John de Laszlo, the son of the famous society portrait painter. They divorced in 1977. uh, And she then talks about how she got to know... um, uh, Rosemary Townsend, uh, who told her these things. Okay, uh, well, I mean, this is this is lifestyle of the rich and famous, isn't it? This is um, 
Yeah. How yeah, much no, people no. jump in and out of bed with each other? I think we should go to Tom because I think he, he get it from the horse's mouth. I keep think reading from her book, she's gonna sue us for copyright breach. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, I'm just the warm-up act for it. No, well, I think Tom's got a lot to say about this and, and other things. So, so let's go to him. No, let's do okay. that. More gossip incoming. Hi guys. Um thanks very much for uh, having me on here today. Um so yes, so I'm the Royal Journalist. Um, for the Daily Beast. I'm the Royal Correspondent for the Daily Beast, um, which is a, uh, in America, it's a very well-known online uh, publication, and we cover a whole range of things. And I was actually hired uh, for the Daily Beast by uh, the great Tina Brown, uh, the founding editor, who, of course, be well-known to to royal fans. Um, She was on our our show last week. Oh right, okay. She was Fantastic. the warm-up act for sure you. Was... <laughs> <laughs> uh, no comment. <laughs> uh, um, well, Tina uh, was great, and but I suppose my interest in the um, royal family um, really uh, dates back to some kind of stories um that uh went the rounds in in my family an uncle of mine in the in the 1880s uh called uh christopher sykes um who uh was uh i've I've got the details here so just forgive me because my my other um cousin christopher simon sykes wrote this very good book um about the sykes family which has got uh some of the details in it um on on the website yeah, no, and it is, it is, it is a good book. It is a good book. So Christopher Sykes was born in 1831, and he died in 1898. Um, and he was a conservative um, politician. He sat in the House of Commons, um, and uh, his signature piece of legislation in the House of Commons was um, a uh, a law that, that that was passed protecting seabirds. Um, and he was ridiculed in Vanity Fair as the gull's friend because of this, um, because his, his one piece of, uh, of legislation that, that he got that he got passed in 1869. But he became a close friend of Edward VII, who was then obviously the Prince of Wales and was, of course, quite a famous um, uh, hedonist, uh, shall we say. Uh, Edward VII, um, and was, of course, famously the longest-serving um, Prince of Wales, uh, waiting for uh, his uh, dear mother, Queen Victoria, to die. And Christopher um, became a very good friend of the Prince of Wales. I'm not sure exactly how he got to know him in the first place, but, you know, they were from a kind of, you know, rich family in Yorkshire. His brother was a baronet, like, they they used to hang out in London uh, at the the Marlborough Club. They were known as the uh, the, the the Marlborough set um, by some, and <clears throat> the Marlborough House set. And the relationship kind of deteriorated, and and because Christopher was overly sort of impressed and overly overly sycophantic, really. Um, to the to, to uh, the the Prince of Wales, and what happened was that um, 
as as they would get as they would drink in the evenings and and get drunk and and have fun um the king developed a habit of pouring his glass of brandy over poor old psyche's head and the brandy would then drip off his nose and christopher would reply as your royal highness pleases and this became a kind of party act that um <clears throat> that Edward would dump a, a glass of brandy over poor old poor old Christopher's head, and this was really only the most graphic illustration of what was going on. Because behind the scenes, uh, Christopher was running up huge debts to entertain and to stay part of this kind of very exclusive club, and ultimately, it 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 it, it would have you know it, it would have ruined him and led to him going bankrupt. He, he was actually bailed out at the last minute. And my grandfather, who was called Christopher Sykes as well, <laughs> um, wrote the most brilliant uh, series of essays. There were four essays called Four Studies in Loyalty. So my grandfather was, um, he was a writer and he was like Evelyn Waugh's best friend. And he wrote uh, Evelyn Waugh's biography, which for many years was the kind of standard work on Evelyn Waugh. It was subsequently... Um, was subsequently kind of displaced by uh, I think Selena Hastings um, did a yep. brilliant um, kind of biography. Um, <clears throat> but but um, Christopher, one of the first books he wrote was called Four Studies in Loyalty, and it's absolutely is there. There are four different stories in it, and one of them is the story of Psyche and the Prince of Wales, and and really that's where a lot of the information um, comes from. But I say that really by way of a, a preface to um, uh, the other um, story um, that uh, has done the rounds in, in the family o- over the years, um, which is that there was a rumour that my grandmother, who was called Camilla Russell, um, had what is often termed a romantic friendship um, with uh, King George VI, uh, obviously, uh, better known uh, to, to to most of us these days as Bertie, the stammering king from uh, the King's Speech, um, <clears throat> and they they were friends really. So Christopher, so we're on a generation now, and uh, my grandfather Christopher Sykes, who died when I was kind of twelve, I suppose, so kind of you know forty years ago. Um, and the writer and his wife Camilla Russell, um, and they they were friends really of the of the royals uh, of of the king and the queen of George the sixth and uh, the lady who of course we know better as, as the queen mother, but who they rather rudely referred to as bulging Bess. Um, <laughs> I've not heard bulging Bess. Gosh, so when <laughs> when was this friendship? When did it start? <clears throat> so. It's hard to know exactly, but I did actually, my father actually died um, 18 months ago. And uh, I did, before he died, I did get him to write some of it down, um, which, um, so so I have got um, some of it here. But um, as far as I can tell, uh, it was definitely, I think that it, it, it sort of began 
perhaps towards the end of the war. So in the kind of 1940s. And I think my, my grandfather was away at the war. He was in the special forces and he was um, behind the lines in Eastern France <clears throat> near Metz um, for two years, li living, in the, living in the woods, um, setting up an advanced camp for the Americans to come through. And this is another story in, in the, the, the collection for, for Studies in Loyalty. And I think that it, it possibly um, began then, because then in 1945, um, they bought the lease on a very uh, lovely double-fronted um, house on Eaton Terrace, um, Christopher and Camilla. Uh, now, uh, I hasten to add that um, buying a lease on a, on a house in Eaton Terrace in, in 1945 was, was probably uh, the best year ever that you could have um, bought a lease because the whole of London was completely destroyed and bombed and no one had any money. Um, <clears throat> but they, presumably through a sort of, I suppose Christopher would have had a trust fund from the Sykeses and Camilla probably had a trust fund from, from the Russells. They bought uh, this um, lovely house on Eaton Terrace. It's not, I've been to look at it. It's not incredibly grand. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not one of those big pillar jobs, you know, on Eaton Square, but it's a beautiful house. And as far as I can tell, part of the reason they bought that was to entertain uh, their set, which included the King and Queen. And so the, the King and Queen would come um, for dinner um, a couple of times a year um, and because of rationing um, the only way that you could uh, really provide a dinner um, or something like that so, sort of legally um, was to get a hotel to do it and to deliver the food um, to the house which is what they used to do so uh, so my father who was born in 1937 remembered um, you know, looking over the balcony and seeing the king and queen arrive, seeing, uh, you know, uh, Len, the odd job man, dressed up uh, as a butler um, for the evening, then going into the, the side room and having having their cocktails and, and, and their drinks and, and all that kind of thing. And there was always this rumour that um, Camilla and the king uh, enjoyed a bit more of a friendship, um, perhaps, um, <clears throat> are the letters they, or... one thing that they unfortunately I have to tell you right now I've looked many years and there's absolutely no documentary evidence of this there are no so letters this, this rumour uh... in, rumor in your family Tom um, yeah we, clearly <laughs> your father would have heard it uh, given that um, his parents were friendly perhaps very friendly with the royal family um, was it sort of openly spoken of or just some slightly whispered, slightly embarrassing, naughty secret? I mean, did, did you ever talk to Camilla about it? No, Camilla died when I was really quite young. She died quite young. So I would have only been seven or eight when Camilla died. Um, but, um, yeah, no, you're right. Uh, no, I don't think it was. Um, as, as far as I know, I mean, I've talked to other members of my family about it. They've said, oh, you know, yeah, it was definitely we we heard that. Um, 
but they were, they, you know, they, they would hang out a lot. They, one of the things they, they liked to do, um, the, the, the King and, and Camilla, um, was they liked to go to um, Victoria Palace uh, and uh, enjoy um, sort of variety shows in the music halls, uh, in the music hall at Variety Palace. And then they would go back um, to the palace and have a private dinner um, in a little octagonal dining room on, on the first floor. Um, and the, one of the, the, the sort of, there's a couple of funny anecdotal stories. So one of the things that I actually do remember um, is my grandfather doing an impression of the king seducing his wife, um, which began, come and see here, my little flower, and sit upon my knee. <laughs> amongst the sort of circles <laughs> um, i mean people who live in grand houses near eaton square and uh, people who are around the royal family for many generations and in the subsequent to this era it's always been understood that there were these discreet liaisons and often the husbands looked the other way like good old parker bowles looked the other way for a long time and that was just understood do you think your granddad was such a man or was it something? Oh, I think totally. I mean, I think they both had their own things going on. Uh, I think that um, my um, my grandmother was apparently delighted when her firstborn was, was a son because it meant she didn't have to have any more children, which would have ruined her figure. Um, you know, yeah, I, th I think it, it was a different kind of time, you know, and I'm very, I try to be very unjudgmental about it because I think that what those people went through in the Second World War is just so unimaginable. I mean, imagine going and living in a forest in France for three, two or three years, not knowing if any day was going to be your last. Imagine half of your town being destroyed and bombs sure. being rained in it. I mean, I just, so I'm very, I don't, you know, I, I think, you know, but and, and I do say, think your, also, your I think father... there's all this stuff about, your father, Tom. Yeah, well, I just, well, I just want to say one thing, which I think there's all this nonsense about, you know, has Prince William had an affair? Has he not had an affair? You know, and of course, there's always been stories about it. Well, I would like to point out that if he hasn't had an affair, he will be the first Prince of Wales in history to have never had an affair. So, you know. <laughs> well, th this uh, is what I mean, Diana, this the side dad, if you didn't. Diana and Charles used to argue <laughs> about this, didn't they? But um, you've picked up stories because, I mean, you're very well connected in those sort of circles. I mean, you've and you've written about it when uh, the press in Britain didn't write about it. But I mean, you have in the Daily Beast about not just one affair with William, but several. Is that, is that right? Well, there's definitely always been rumours that, you know, uh, William, um, you know, ha had, uh, you know, had, 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 had affairs. Um, those have always been rumours. Um in a way, it seems to me like those rumours will never be substantiated or they'll never be stood up because it seems to me that he, the people who have been um, uh, named by some publications as, as the person he's had an affair with are sort of drawn from that same aristocratic circle. Yeah. Who, well, who that's how it works, dream of, um, Yeah. yeah. yeah well, and, and I think a little bit of the same thing uh, you know, as obviously, um, <clears throat> if you're the king and you want to have an affair with, with somebody, you need to be reasonably uh, careful um, who you who you decide uh, to to do that with. But um, yes, yeah, so there were only really ever, and and I, sadly, I mean, I'd love to have written a, a book about it, and I did try, and I, I did some research about it, but there's just no 
physical evidence. You know, there's no letters. Anything like that was destroyed. But what, what? A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Another quite funny story. So I'm sorry to interrupt. Well, another quite, quite strong evidence in in the way your father looked. He looks just like George the <laughs> Sixth. Well, no, I think it. I think it predates. I think. I think it predates. I, I think the relationship post, the relationship predates the birth of my father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, another quite funny story that is in the winter of 1949. Um, <clears throat> Christopher and Camilla were invited to a ball at Buckingham Palace. And so the whole of Britain was shivering with rationing and shortages and um, a three-year wait for a new car, clothing coupons. Well, Buckingham Palace threw this lavish party with champagne, dishes, pheasant, partridge, you know, because you were allowed game, obviously, was exempt from the rationing from from Sandringham. Hundreds of guests. And the the rumour was that um, the king and Camilla um, did not, Join this uh, big celebration, but had a quiet um, dinner à deux in a in a in, in a, a smaller um, little little dining room. Said to be was my father always insisted it was an octagonal dining room. So I don't know. That perhaps is one thing I could investigate. But Christopher was chatting to the U.S. ambassador to London, an acquaintance of his at the bar, <coughs> and a friend of the ambassador's came over and greeted him. And uh, Christopher, um, uh, the the ambassador, turned to his friend and said, uh, this is Christopher. And then he said, Christopher, I'm so sorry. I must apologize. I've completely forgotten your last name. And Christopher is said to have replied, Colonel Keppel. Oh, golly. And Keppel, of course, was <laughs> not the mistress of Edward VIII, of Seventh. <laughs> But it's Alice funny, Keppel was the king the well-known mistress. with Camilla. We, uh, that's, that's two I know, of them. I know. Was there I know. any suggestion? And the other story any, that I love. Was there story any suggestion that, that the, the Queen Mother had romantic friendships? Or was she just looking the other way while her husband did? God, I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know. I genuinely don't know. Anyway, the enough. last tiny anecdote I have to tell you about, about this is that... Um, my father had a, a dreadful stammer, uh, which he inherited uh, from his father, um, who also had had a, had had a stammer. And um, so, and my father was treated um, by Mister Logue, the um, speech therapist from the King's Speech, <laughs> because the King 
said to my mother, oh, you must take him to see this, this wonderful man, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. So I don't know. I mean, and, and the, the other funny thing is that when the king died in 1952, I mean, literally the moment that he died, they gave up the lease on the house in Eaton Terrace and moved to the country. And my father said to his mother, um, why are we leaving London? She said, well, there's no, no point being here anymore now that the king has died. And I, I think actually, I think it was the end of an era when um, George VI died. I think, you know, uh, Elizabeth was obviously, you know, such a brilliant monarch in so many, in so many, you know, she was the right woman at the right time for, for the job. But she definitely wasn't fun like the previous sort of generations. You know, there was no, there was, was no wildness. There was her no sister party. was quite wild. Her sister was. <laughs> her sister was. Her sister was. I mean, but the, I, the, I think the, so. The that's that really, as far playing. as I know, that's when the association kind of kind of ended. Um, the they were both invited to the in my funeral. Mind when we talk about these scandalous, gossipy things, which let's face it, are fun, especially if it's in your own family. But the question is, yeah. should does it matter? Should we care if the people at the top of our society are secretly having affairs? Why the hell not? I mean, or Everyone should we know is. because they represent something bigger than themselves, the nation or the church? Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty amazing, isn't it? I think when DNA testing came in, I think it was a bit of a shocker for people to realise um, how many people discovered that, you know, they had, secret brothers or secret sisters or their fathers weren't their father their mother you know so i th I think uh but i i you know the, the royals have to i i don't know i mean i i think i think what's so um you know i love the story as well you, and you must have had georgie campbell on you should get if you haven't you should get her on yes we have about miller sykes being being a being a lover Yes, yes, yes. Well, and she also presumably told you her amazing, um, well, it's not her theory, but the amazing theory that she did a lot to to, to, to popularise about the Queen Mother um, being the cook's daughter. Did you yes. know? That's been widely yeah, reported now. Such an amazing, fantastic story. And, you know, at the same time, obviously very practical. I mean, if you've had nine female children in a row or whatever it was they had and you're going to lose the house i mean you're compelled really to you know try and try try and save the try and save the place so i don't know i mean look i sort of a, also wonder i've got to say we should explain to the listeners this is a story that the queen mother basically used a surrogate the cook to have um the child to have the queen isn't it? Yeah. Isn't that the story? Yeah. And that's yeah. why she was Who called subsequently, cooking. yeah, better known. And, <laughs> and, and, and the queen's sort of the second name was Marguerite, which is the name of the cook, which is not a royal name. Um, I think the problem with that theory that. is that the, 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 well, no, not one of the problems. I think the, the, one of the interesting things is that the, the, the queen mom was seen at a dance shortly before she supposedly had the child. And no, and no one felt that she was pregnant. At the wrong end of the country. At the wrong yeah. end of the country as well. So we see certain parallels, because that's, of course, one of the accusations with Meghan, isn't it? That she's used a surrogate to have Archie. Mm. Mm. I, I mean, that brings us slightly well, they, I never really understood that one. No, no I, I didn't. Understand. 
But that brings us slightly on to the, you know, you, you've got this very interesting foot in sort of both sides of the Atlantic. You're writing for an American audience. You're based in Britain. You clearly have very good connections in Britain, which is, I think, used to inform your journalism. I mean, do you find that that, I mean, that you find that there are two very different views of the royals on each side of the Atlantic, or is that, are they increasingly coming together into a common view? I think it's really hard to tell. I think it's just, I think, I think everything is so polarized now. Um, that, that I think that if you spend too much time trying to think about what people think, uh, it's a really dangerous trap to go down. And I think as a writer or reporter or journalist, uh, you just have to do the best with the sources that you have and the people who speak to you um, to tell um, the truth um, as you understand it. But I do think that um, I think there will always be a fascination with Harry and Meghan. And I think people will always, you know, I think they could at any point, I think they could click their fingers and get a million dollars to go and do an after dinner speech. I mean, I really do. Um, So I think that the idea that they're sort of washed up um, can be a bit very much oversold, you know, Um, I think, I think perhaps what I, do think is true is that I think in America uh, people sort of they they're a lot more I don't know they they can sort of turn on you quite quickly in America and it's not really turning on you they just grow bored of you and there's so much there's so many people competing for Americans entertainment uh, for, for Americans attention um, that I think that um I think they need to be careful, um, Harry and Meghan. And I think that, you know, I think they probably, uh, I think they were very unlucky with their timing. Um, Literally, COVID happened, you know, right after they left. And I think if COVID hadn't happened, they might have been able to give their independent careers a bit bit more of a kickstart. As it was, they were kind of becalmed for a couple of years. Then they did this interview with Oprah, which, you know, whilst it was big news at the time, I think ultimately, I think people wanted to hear it and they wanted to hear it once. I don't think they needed to hear it all again in mm-hmm. Harry's book. And, I, you know, I think people don't, it's hard to listen to somebody just complaining the whole time, isn't it? I mean, we all have friends like that who just moan and moan and moan and moan about everything. And in the end, you're just like, do you know what? I actually don't want to spend, <laughs> I don't want to spend any time with you. So but what's the bigger problem? The, yeah, for the monarchy, the Meghan or Andrew? I weirdly, I don't think I. I sort of, in a way, neither of them are a problem because they've managed to sort of cut themselves free of them. I, I there is consternation, as I understand it, amongst some people, of why have they made this very public show of support to Andrew and bringing Andrew back into the fold when it appeared they had quite successfully cut him off and people tell you can only really tell you that it's because <coughs> Charles believes in unity um more um perhaps more um uh unguarded um people might tell you off the record that they'd rather have the troublemakers inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in um and I think there's a bit of truth to that. Um, but ultimately, I don't think Harry and Meghan are really a problem. I mean, I think 
you know, they dropped the last truth bomb, right, which was that it was Charles and Kate who, or the last truth bomb was accidentally dropped on their behalf, that it was Charles and Kate who were the royal racists. And what was the response? Charles, you know, they got a, Kate got a standing ovation at the Royal Albert Hall that evening. So I, I think they, um, I, I think, I think they fluffed it. I think they took a shot. You know, it's not saying if you take a shot at the king, you better kill him. Well, they took a shot at the king and they really did not. It looked for a moment like it, it was really going to damage um, the royals. But actually, I'm, I'm kind of amazed that it, that it didn't, that it just that people really turned against Harry and Meghan. And I think that they can use. I mean, isn't that are there rumors that she may do a book? I think there are, but I mean, I just, I don't know. I mean, I suppose she might have to if she needs the money, but I just, I just wonder whether people in America are just going to go roll their eyes and go, we're tired of your bullshit. You know, I, I don't know. I just, that, that's slightly the feeling I get. I think it'd be a big risk to do another really negative tell all book. Gosh, and how myself, much Fergie? Especially is, if they, is Fergie if they want this career as TV producers and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Sorry, what was that, Andrew? Distancing herself from from Andrew because I mean, she, her 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 money is made in the states, and this can't be good for her brand. I mean, that's what you would think, right? But she seems to take every opportunity she can to really associate herself with Andrew. So she's she's a clever, you know. She, I, I do think there is a really different level of respect and love for Fergie in America than there is in the UK. And I think we're warming to her a bit now in the UK. I think people are coming around to it and they're thinking, for God's sake, it was 20 years, 30 years ago, you know, and she's, you know, she's, she's done her best and the world's changed and the world's moved on. And I, I think the the late queen was, you know, very important in, in helping that rehabilitation. But um, I don't know, like it, it's, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because you would have thought that logically, yeah, she wouldn't want anything. I would. I don't understand why anyone saying, "Why? Well, who wants to walk to church, with Prince yeah. Andrew on Christmas morning?" I. I don't get it. I yeah. don't get it. And and there are, you know, there are people. I mean, someone was was telling me this week that, that Williams, you know, not particularly happy with the overall strategy, you know, but that you know he accepts he accepts the authority of his father and you know has to go along with it. And the last thing he's going to do is kick up a big another feud or a big another load of trouble but I, I think I think really if it with hindsight I, I think you'd you'd have to say maybe it might have been better to leave Andrew in the shadows I don't understand really what the advantage was in in making him a what do you think Andrew because I know you're writing about Andrew I mean why uh, I, I think why they would bring try- him in from the car they were well. I think it, you know, as you say, they want to have the person inside the tent rather than outside. I think it's it's about family unity. Um, uh, you know, you, they've got enough problems. Try and keep everyone on side if they can. Uh, I think, as you say, there's a sense of forgiveness. There's, I mean, after all, the, the king had made a speech about the importance of family and forgiveness. And he could hardly keep people out. But Andrew had been at Sandringham the previous year and just hadn't gone to church, so they could have easily done that. Mm. I think they weren't, I don't think they realised what was in these depositions. Uh, they, I think they'd believed mm. things he had said. Uh, and now, of course, he's been caught out. There's, there's far more there than I think he realised would come out. 
And so their strategy, they've been caught. But actually, actually, Andrew, do you know what? I, I disagree with you on that. I, I, there's nothing new. There's nothing new in those depositions. There's not one new thing in them. There's the thing uh, that, because I, I actually did, a, did, did some research on this for a story I was doing this weekend. So I just double checked everything. The only thing that I thought might be new was this idea that, that Virginia Jufre had been paid $15,000 by Andrew. That was out there, 2020. Someone had written about that. The idea that he, you know, had participated in a teenage orgy or that he had sex with Virginia Jufre. Well, I mean, that's well out there. I, I mean, I agree. Like, you know, at, at the same time, it's not a great week for Prince I, Andrew. But I think actually, it's all, there's no fr- there's no new allegation in there. There is not well, one the new fact allegation. He's spent there. several weeks in Miami. I think the thing is, we've we now have a much stronger right. sense of what was going on at the, at, the, at the Epstein Mansion, and he was spending a lot of time there. Uh, but I think the yeah. importance okay. is we're getting yeah. legal depositions. You know, we've heard these stories; people have written or had interviews. But we've not had them give uh, depositions under oath. And I think we've got several people yeah. talking. So I think it is, it, it, the picture has come together. Uh, we were getting little fragments before and suddenly we're seeing the full picture and, yeah. and on the yeah. basis of Fair legal enough. depositions. Uh, and certainly my research yeah. is pushing, pulling up quite a lot of other stuff. Um, uh, you know, yeah. he's been caught lying repeatedly, covering his tracks, making trips there when he claimed to be doing other things. And so if he's lying about mm. that, one wonders if he's lying about other things. And I think the worry must be that the people now feel, now these depositions have come out, um, that other people might come forward. I'm certainly uh, talking to a number of people who don't necessarily have had, had, had affairs with him or, or slept with him, but their friends did, and they're speaking on behalf of the friends. Now, of course, that's second-hand information, but there's no reason for these mm. people to make it up. Um, when, when someone has come to them and, and it's all sort of slightly off the record. So I don't know. I think, I think, I think you're absolutely right that it pulls it all together. That it's, you're right that it, it pulls it all together and it, it puts it all in context. And it's like all these little bits of the mosaic have suddenly been put together in one sort of huge, you know, huge masterpiece. Yeah. We had a sort of drip, <laughs> stretched drip across the effect. canvas and people sort of forgot. Yeah. You know, I, I've just even going through yeah. the cuts. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of stories that I'd forgotten about, and I think suddenly we've got all this stuff together. But I think that's that's what happened. I didn't. I don't think he'd been totally open with them, uh, and now they've sort of had a mm. panic uh, about what's going to happen. Mm. But do you find there's a yeah, sort of tension yeah. because I mean you have very good contacts and you protect your sources. Um, I mean, do they speak to you because they sort of feel the story needs to get out? Or do they speak on behalf of other people that, that you, you feel sometimes you might be used? Um, wh- why should people talk? Because as you say, there is this very strong emerta around the royal family. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's it, it, it's complicated. But I mean, ultimately, it, it comes down to trust, I suppose. Um, and But yeah, you, you're always aware that people are, you know, potentially trying to use you to to get their narrative over and, and it is i suppose it's your job as a journalist to filter those out you know for your for your for your readers and to you you have to ultimately you have to make a decision about whether whether you trust your sources or not um i, I don't know but why do they talk in really the first place it. i mean what's in it for them is it well, just uh, or, or getting the truth out I mean, 
I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not really massively comfortable talking about the motivations of of you know people who speak to me in confidence, really. Okay, no, fair enough, fair enough. But I mean, do I you want, think I'm going to go back to your own family because all this is fascinating talking about Andrew and Fergie <laughs> and the rest of it. But, but your I'm father say, is I'm disappointed. More... I, I was going to call you sir or your majesty. I, <laughs> I thought your dad definitely looked like a royal, but you're saying it's impossible. <laughs> is it the Harry and James Hewitt thing? The dates just don't match. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a bit of that. It's a bit of that. Yeah, it's a bit of that film. Oh, I don't know. Um, I think you're covering up an even deeper, darker secret. That's what I think. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, it's such a... Well, my dad was, my dad was, yes, he was, he was, he was, he was, he was, he was, he, he, he'd be unlikely to, to, to win father of the year. Um, but he was a good, he was a good, uh, he, he was good company, uh, and a great, um, great raconteur and that kind of thing. And, um, yeah, I was just very lucky. So he actually, funnily enough, speaking about Georgie earlier, um, he actually sent Georgie, uh, three or four chat because he was very good friends of georgie was really his his best friend and she was amazing to him uh, we're talking about lady my, colin um, campbell here for people who don't yes, know georgie lady colin campbell, lady after, colin campbell just so you know yes strange yes, british after, upper class codes are being used <laughs> we should provide a glossary for american and australian <laughs> lady c lady c was amazing and just publicly you know say a big thank you to her because she was um she was fantastic to my father and she she really uh she 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 would have him down every weekend after my stepmother died uh he spent every weekend there and so he sent her the uh these chapters of the memoir which she then sent to me um after after he died um which is how i know a lot of this stuff so um you know it's great i mean i knew it i knew it on background but there's there's another brilliant story which sadly he didn't write down which was um, the this, this story of when he was sick on the king's shoes, which was one of his favourite stories. Um, <laughs> I think they like had been invited to Sandringham shooting or something, or maybe the king had come to Sledmere to shoot. I don't know. Anyway, they the kids were lined up to 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 meet the king. He said, "I'm I'm, I'm really I'm really not feeling well. Don't be ridiculous. You have to come meet the you know you have to come be presented to the king." I'm really not feeling, I'm really not feeling too good. Don't be ridiculous. You know, Bella was marched out and promptly vomited on the king's shoes. And apparently the king was very charming. He said, don't, don't worry about it. Gosh. And you don't feel any deep kind of DNA uh, ancestral drives pulling you towards a man who might pour brandy on your head or anything like that? <laughs> no, I'm glad to say I don't. No, no, no. But well, your about your it's, it's, it's a wonderful way to sort of see the, the royals and how they really live in private and their perhaps their secret sense of fun and naughtiness. That's that's why it's so interesting, I think, to to get, yes. that, to yeah. get that angle. And you get it only from diaries yeah. and things like Noel Coward and people like that, who, who clearly were very mm. close. Because mm. I mean, your mm. father, I mean, he went to prison. I mean, he had lots of wives. He had lots of different careers. I mean, he's he was a, quite a quite a character. Can you sort of give us he a quick drew- portrait of him? He uh well he, times you know, he, up up on the on the website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was sort of a work of art, that obituary, definitely. Um yeah, he um <clears throat> I mean I I think again, I think a lot of it is a legacy of of the war. I really do. 
and I think that I think that we do actually forget um, if you were born in 1937, quite how miserable and terrifying um, your your childhood was. I mean, even if you were you know a member of the so-called upper classes or whatever, you know you you were always hungry. Um, there, there was never there was never enough to eat, and you know everybody was coming home. You know if they were coming home at all, missing an arm, missing a leg, you know all these kinds of things. And so I I do think that after the war, you definitely see, you know that that there is this obviously the eldest sons and what have you keep inheriting their estates and you know, nothing changes um, behind the walls of those bigger states. But I think you definitely see this other kind of um, almost subculture of the aristocracy, you know, which really, really epitomised by, by people like, like my father, who thought, you know, I'm going to have fun and I'm going to have a laugh and I'm going to... And the other thing that's really weird when, when you read the newspapers from, from those days is that they only the only people that they the people that they wrote about were aristocrats i mean when you read the daily express gossip column from you know 1958 it's it's absolutely extraordinary it's it's all these sort sort of minor aristocrats so my dad became um my my dad was he, he uh he he was he was a leader of this thing called the chelsea set um, in the kind of late 50s, early 60s. And they were kind of, you know, bright, young, aristocratic things, you know, who who messed around in London. There was a lot of kind of gambling clubs. I mean, the Aspinall sort of gambling fortune sort of sprung out of that same era. So it was a lot of illegal gambling clubs. And um, yeah, you know, it, it was, it, it, it was, it was, a, it was a wild time. I mean, you know, one of my, um, <laughs> One of my father's friends, who I, I said I was, um, I was interviewing, and I, I said I wanted to, I was going to write a book. He said, "Right, I'm, I really don't think you should. Um, I really don't think you should write a book about it." And I said, "Really? Why not?" He said, "Well, people might misunderstand. You know, it was, it was a very different time." And I said, "Well, what do you mean it was different? I know it was a different time. What do you mean?" He said, "Well, you see, if I was, if I was going to meet a friend at the Drones Club." you see, say, for example, you know, and I was late. I'd run out onto the road and a bus would be coming down and I'd hop onto the bus and I'd say, oh, driver, um, you seem to have a um, flat tyre at the back. Um, and he'd go, oh, thanks very much, Governor. And he'd jump off the bus and he'd run around and have a look um, to, to have a look at the tyre. And while he was out of the bus, I'd jump into the driver's seat and I'd just drive myself to the Jones Club. And the driver would be running along behind the bus, screaming and shouting. <laughs> and I'd park outside the Ritz and I'd run into the Ritz um, <laughs> because I knew that the bus driver wouldn't be able to follow me in there. And I was like, right, OK. And he said, and he looked at me and he said, you know, if you did that today, you would be shot. You <laughs> would be shot. And it, it really, for me, it really summed up, you know, it's, such, it's a lovely anecdote, obviously, but it's, it's just how very incredibly sort of in a way unaccountable you were, how anonymous you were. There was, God, I mean, you know, there was absolutely no, it was barely even, I mean, a check, you know, you could just write a check and just sign it and get, because did know, they walk have out of the hotel you'd been trust, trust funds? I mean, did they need to work or was this a generation that just lived? My on? father didn't. Yeah. 
My father did not. No, no. So no, he had no. to earn. I, his I think. I think his father. Yeah. So he had to earn his living because Christopher was, you know, a younger son, and so I think Christopher was his father was provided for by by the sort of Sledmere estate to 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 a certain extent. I mean, I think he would have considered himself dreadfully poor, um, and we would have thought that probably having a house on Eaton Terrace would mean you're doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a world. But a but world. my father certainly wouldn't have. My father certainly had to make his own money. And yes, yeah, so he, he he kind of he ran gambling clubs for a lot of time. Then he got mixed up in in various um uh sorts of uh uh criminal enterprises. He never actually uh, just to 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 defend my father from him, he never actually spent time um in prison other than on remand. Um right. so he was remanded Sorry. uh in custody. Correct. And he and he was deported. Um, to he was deported uh, to Australia, but he beat the case in Australia and was acquitted and returned home with his uh, reputation and and uh, and and record um, intact. So uh, oh, good. I apologise for that. I think that was in the Times. <laughs> I misread it. <laughs> no, he, it's it's true. He 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 spent time in prison, but he was on on remand. Gosh, yeah, gosh, yeah. I yeah, think we have yeah, to wrap yeah, this up, yeah, Andrew. Yeah. But you know, it was it was a big. There's show. there's actually. There's actually a lovely, um, there's actually, and, and Christopher, you know, my, his father, obviously, like any father, adored his son. And, and, and there's a lovely bit in, in a letter from, I think, from Nancy Mitford, who was a friend of Christopher's and wrote Noblesse. He contributed to the Noblesse Oblige volume because it yep. was that originally that pamphlet was published as a larger volume and Christopher wrote one of the essays. And there's a lovely letter where, Nancy, I think, writes to Evelyn Waugh and says um, something like, I saw Christopher at the club in London and he was terribly sad and uh, I couldn't get much out of him. But of course, it's something to do with that son who he so adores, you know, and you're just like, yeah, you know. So I think I think it was, you know, I'm. I'm probably uh I, I'm probably inclined to um I'm probably inclined to um uh give my dad the benefit of the, the mitigating circumstances. I think it was a strange time in British society. Um and I think that um yeah, I think I think that I think that the whole world was readjusting after the Second World War. I really do. I think I think the whole world was and then of course, you know in the 60s and it washed it all away really so gosh I think was, we all need to fl- start flagging yeah. down buses and t- telling the driver <laughs> that yeah see how far we go we've got a lot before you sympathies get shot with the, my sympathies with the bus driver uh, thank you so much tom <laughs> for sharing this amazing um very different take on uh, 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 scandalous but fun time <laughs> great thanks <laughs> so thanks, much no, thanks, 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 we've covered a lot of ground Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a Podcast World production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.